We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. How you doing? You hanging in there? Good. Um, just to let you know, I keep praying on the facility. We, uh, we're kind of still going back and forth. We put in a proposal on Monday, and so we're still waiting for uh, to hear back from them. But there's a lot of things that are stirring, and I really believe it's because you guys are praying. And so I would ask that you would continue to lift these things up uh, to the Lord, that he would uh, lead us and guide us and just open and close doors according to his will. And so I'm really excited about tonight's study. If you have a Bible, let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. As tonight we cover a, a, a chapter and a half, we're going to learn through the life of David. You know, um, one of the things that we see in studying the Bible is that it tells you all the good things and all the bad things about people, which is how we know it was ordained by God. Because if it was just men writing the story, they'd leave out all the bad stuff, huh? they leave all that out. But God uh, shows us everything, and a lot of it is for us to learn from when they do good and also learn from when they do bad. And so uh, tonight we're going to learn some, some real important lessons on parenting and sin and forgiveness. Uh, one of the most difficult things, you guys, for me, to be honest with you, and, I, and I've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, but it's just hard to, to balance you know, grace and holiness, you know, because um, if you don't balance it, you're either going to become carnal or you're going to become legalistic. It's the bottom line. And we can't be either of those, you guys, because that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was not carnal, but neither was he legalistic. And so when you understand, you know, I, like I told you guys before, if you're on this side of sin, then let this, you know, encourage you to put on the brakes, man. Don't sin, especially don't go into it with eyes wide open. You know, don't go into it presumptuously and resistantly, insistently, consistently, persistently. Don't do that, you know. So, so I pray that God would use this for, for that, you know. God protect us. But at the same time, if you have blown it, I want you to know that there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And don't let the devil or any other person tell you you're a second-class Christian because there's no such thing. You're either a son of God, a child of God, or you're not. And there's no in-betweens. And so praise God for that, that he washes you and he makes you as white as snow, right here, right now. And so we learn from this, whether, whatever side we're on, and we're going to see how important it is, um, I think, to take to heart the lessons that we've learned from the life of David. And I've mentioned to you many times that the best way to learn the lessons of life is how? Read your Bible, right? Read your Bible, man. <laughs> Study it. You know, there are some who tell you, hey, Manny, the best way to learn is the school of hard knocks experience, man. You know, but let me tell you something. The school of hard knocks is a good education, but the tuition is costly, man. And so we want to try not to make those mistakes. In our study, we're going to see David learns the lesson the hard way. By the time we cover our chapter tonight, we're going to see two of David's sons dead, a daughter's raped, Another son runs away, and pretty much it's a direct violation, all due to David's sin. And so whatever you do, don't go into sin lightly, because look at what it does, man. It's some crazy things. Look at verse 15 of Second Samuel 12. It says, And Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. 
David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And so the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. Then David saw that his servants were whispering. David, perceiving that the child was dead, therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself. That's symbolic of a new start, changes clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. If you were here last week, and I know some of you probably are familiar with the story that, you know, we saw the confrontation that Nathan had with David. Remember David sinned, Nathan said, you're the one, you're the man, you've done this crazy stuff. It was this confrontation between Nathan and David, and then there was this sentence from God to David. And as a result of David's sin, in falling into sexual sin with Bathsheba, and then murdering Uriah, Uh, The sword would never depart from his house. The wonderful things that God wanted to do with him would now be thwarted. Uh, We're going to see that the children would suffer, and we begin to see some of that even now. Here we see in verse uh, 15, look again, it says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became ill. And that's that's a heavy verse. You know, you've probably heard of divine healing, there's also a divine sickness that some people uh, they get sick, they get ill, they die as a result of sin. We see the same truth over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when people were taking communion in an unworthy manner. Some people died. We see it throughout the Bible. It could be, you know, you, know, you see Ananias and Sapphira, Nadab and Abihu, different things happening, the, the rebellion of Korah. Now that, that can happen. Here we see something interesting, though. It's because of David's sin that their child died. That's a real difficult one. We're going to see as we go through our study today the accountability that we have as parents, especially as dads. Tragically, due to the sins of David, we see this child sick. So what does David do? Well, he begins to plead to the Lord. You know, apparently David did believe in the grace and forgiveness that Nathan has said to him, hey, God's put away your sin, so you are forgiven. And so, you know, David went in and he just fasted and he prayed. Uh, The NIV says he was there not just one night, but many nights and just seeking the Lord. Lord, if there's some way, you know, can you change this whole situation? You know, and I think it's cool and it's important for us to know that sometimes those things are possible. Remember that time when Isaiah came into Hezekiah's uh, uh, presence, the king of Judah, and he said, hey, Hezekiah, I just want to let you know you're going to die. 
Right? Remember that story? And so what did Hezekiah do? You know, he didn't really accept it. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but he turned his face to the wall and he started praying, Lord, give me more time. I want to see my grandchildren. I remember when I got diagnosed with high blood pressure, I thought I was going to die next week, you know. And I didn't know. I went to the pharmacy and I was all crying, you know. Lord, this is it, you know. And so anyways, I remember taking walks and just saying, Lord, I would love to see my grandchildren. Lord, let me see my grandchildren serving the Lord. I tell you what. You know, so it's okay to pray for an extended life. And Hezekiah did that. Isaiah came back and said, you know what? God heard your cry. God kind of changed his mind. And you've got an extra 15 years. You know, we see the same thing with Jonah. You know, the Lord told Jonah to go to Nineveh, that wicked, wicked, wicked city, and where they would take literally the heads of all the people they killed and they'd make mounds out of them. They were such a bad city. Go to the city and tell them that God's going to wipe them out. And that was what God said. That's what God meant. But what ended up happening, the people fasted, right? They turned to the Lord, so to speak, and there was a revival there. The whole city, you know, got, 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 I don't know if they got saved. I know they averted judgment. And God, I guess you could say, relented. And so, you know, I think that's, you know, was the heart that David was thinking. You know, Nathan said the child's going to die, but I'm going to pray like I mean it. I'm going to pray with all my heart. I don't know for sure what's going to happen, but Lord, I'm going to seek you. And I pray that we would have that heart. You guys, don't give up on whatever the situation is or whatever is going on in your life. Whatever, you know, you might think and you're like, man, there's no hope that this, you know, dream or this aspiration or whatever can happen. And I just want to encourage you guys, don't give up. I think it's okay. Of course, we don't know. But man, you know, today's reading, Blind Bartimaeus. You guys remember that story when he was there sitting by the side? He heard Jesus was coming by, and so he started crying out. And all his friends told him to be quiet because I guess he was making too much noise, but he cried out all the more. That's the type of praying that we should be praying. Cry out all the more. And so what happened? He got Jesus' attention. Jesus brought him to him. And what do you want me to do, Rabboni, that I might see? And so the Lord said, man, because of your faith, boom, and he gave him his sight. So I think that was David's heart here. He was really just praying. And I even think, and there's a lot of things to think of, but what about our country? Many, many Christian people will tell you that it's too late for America. You know what? I'll tell you what. Until that happens, we've got to pray. We've got to pray for our country. God might bring a revival before his arrival. I don't know. Maybe not. All I know is that this right here is really cool for us. And, uh, and so what ends up happening is David's praying and and God, you know, he doesn't always say, you know, yes. In, in this instance, the child died on the seventh day. And so they were really afraid to tell him. They're like whispering back and forth. And then David hears and he says, hey, I know what you guys are talking about. Is the child dead? They said, yeah. They didn't want to tell him because they thought he might do some harm to himself. Because he knew that he was responsible. He knew that. And so what does David do? He gets up takes a shower, changes his clothes, and he goes into the tabernacle area and he just worships the Lord. Right? That's what we read right here. David knew that his child was with the Lord in heaven and he knew that one day he would join him. And there's actually a lot of theology there. These guys didn't get it. They're like, man, I don't get it. Before the child died, you were there praying and weeping and fasting and 
Now that he's dead, you are worshiping? And David says right there in verse 23 that the main thing is he's dead. I I shouldn't fast. I can't bring him back. But one day, I'm going to go to him. One day we'll be together. And that's how you can worship. You know, there's a few comforting truths in this passage. We see here salvation for the children, reconciliation with our loved ones. There's no such things as ghosts. I want you guys to know that. He can't come back. Some people say, oh yeah, but they're still with me. No, they're not with you, okay? And they're not. That's not what happens. David says right here, they can't return to me. No such thing as reincarnation. And what we find, you guys, in reading this right here, there's a lot of comfort. There's comfort when anyone passes from earth to heaven. And I, and I pray that you guys would know that because sometimes it's hard when somebody dies, when a loved one dies. It's okay to weep, but you can weep in worship. It's okay to cry, but you can cry with comfort knowing that your loved one is in heaven. And one day, you know, the comfort of that truth, we're going to be together again. You know, one of the things I love about being involved here as a Christian and for all of us here, Paul said we have the ministry of reconciliation. And we're reconciled with God and we're reconciled with our loved ones on earth and we're even going to be reconciled with our loved ones in heaven. And so that was a comfort that we see here. And of course the other comfort is that infants, if they pass, they are in heaven. John Corson said when a child dies before the age of accountability or understanding, he goes to be in the presence of the Lord. You know, some of you here, maybe you've experienced something like that. It could be a miscarriage or a child that died at a young age. And, you know, for whatever strange reason, sometimes there's this weird mentality, you know, like, oh, I don't know, are they, are they saved? Are they in heaven? This right here, God's word says clearly that they are. You know, maybe you came from a Catholic background, and there was a while that the Catholic Church used to teach that children didn't go directly to heaven, that unless they were baptized, they went to a place called limbo. Now, they no longer teach that, um, but we know that in looking at their doctrine over the years, that things have changed. You know, I think it was 2007, limbo was let go uh, by the Catholic Church, and they now teach that there's hope. They say there's hope for a child who dies without being baptized. Well, I want to tell you that there's more than hope. There's certainty that if a child dies before the age of accountability, and we don't know for sure, some say maybe the age of 12, all I know is when they understand the gospel and they can reject it or not, it's then that they're accountable. And we have the authority of God's word that there's more than hope. Here's a child right here. He's not baptized. He's not even circumcised. Now, that's interesting that he died on the seventh day. He didn't die after being circumcised on the eighth day when the Jews... No, it was before then, and there he is one day in heaven. But the child dies. And so we're going to see as we go through our study, you guys, and for all of us it's real practical. There's a heavy warning uh, for sin. Because look what it does. This child died because of David's sin. There's also a good practice. And that wherever you're at, don't lose hope. Pray with all your heart. But there's also a comforting truth. And that you know, when our loved ones go to heaven, and even our kids, one day we'll be with them again. 
And so we read on in verse 24. It says in chapter 12, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And I remember reading through the book of Numbers uh, for the first time. And I remember when they blew it in Numbers chapter 13. You guys remember they sent the spies. They said, oh, what? there's giants in the land. There's no way we can subdue them. We're grasshoppers in their sight. The walls are too big, fortified cities. And so the 10 out of the 12 brought back a bad report and they discouraged the heart of the entire nation. So God was pretty upset with them. They had sinned greatly. But then you read on in the book of Numbers, it doesn't take long, and the Lord says what? And when you go into the land, when you go into the land. You know, and I know for a lot of us here, you know, if we were God, we would wipe Israel out. We would have started with Moses, like, you know, God kind of wanted to do. But see, God is the God of the second chance. God is the God of the fat chance. God is the God of the slim chance. God is a God of grace. And what we see right here is amazing to me, the, the birth of Solomon. You know, the first son died a day before circumcision, the day before being named. Their first son didn't even have one name, but their second son had two. The name Solomon, his name, is, his name means peaceable. But then there was something about this son between, of all people, David and Bathsheba. Wait a minute, they're not supposed to be together, but here's God's grace, David and Bathsheba, and Solomon is born, and it's a trip because it says that God really loved him. Now, what does that mean? Does God have favorites? Well, yeah, besides me, let's see here. <laughs> no, it just there was something about Solomon, and especially in his early years, that just really God was blessed with really blessed with. And we see the way that Solomon started off. Huh? God was this man, really impressed with Solomon. So he named him. He said, and this is interesting, he goes through Nathan. He says, Nathan, go to David, and I want you to give him another name. I want you to call him Jedidiah. What does that mean? It means beloved of the Lord. David means beloved. Solomon is beloved of the Lord. I wonder if they had bragging rights on that. I wonder, hey, Dad, you know who I am, right? <laughs> Jedediah. I mean, this, when you look at this, how could God possibly bless the relationship of David and Bathsheba in any way? Well, there's only one way, you guys, and that is His grace, right? God and His grace. And here's an interesting thing. Warren Wiersbe taught me this a long time ago. Uh, through his teachings, he says God took David's two greatest sins and out of his two greatest sins, he was able to transform them into two glories. Number one was Solomon and number two was the temple. We know what David did with you know, um, Uriah and Bathsheba and what we find is that God ended up you know, blessing their relationship, giving to them Solomon who would be the king but then later on, David did a big sin and that he numbered the people, something you weren't supposed to do. And as a result of that, thousands of people died. But what ended up happening is the, the, the angel of the Lord was just about to strike the whole country. And what ends up happening is David goes in and he buys this threshing floor of Nashon. And what ends up happening, that place right there becomes the Temple Mount. 
And there's, there's a lesson there, you guys. There's a lesson. And not, again, not saying on this side of sin, oh, I'm going to go ahead and sin. But there's a lesson there. You know what? Don't keep on sinning. You know, you don't go on sinning. But whatever you do, do not give up. Do not lose heart. Don't let the enemy defeat you with that double-edged sword of doubt and discouragement and condemnation. Man, I pray that we would know there's grace in the Lord. There's that Genesis 50:20. what they meant for evil, God can use for good. And again, it's not in any way a license to continue in sin for the lawless because we're going to see today the heavy consequences of that. But at the same time, it would offer hope to the hopeless. If you're here today and you've blown it, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Repent. Just really repent. Leave the results and the rest of your life in the hands of Almighty God who has shown himself to be overwhelmingly gracious. You know, something else that's kind of interesting here is that after David was married to Bathsheba, uh, God still calls her Uriah's wife. Like, look at chapter 12, verse 15. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. But they were already married. But see, what ends up happening is because the Lord calls him Uriah's wife, probably because the child was conceived while they were still married. But when you go over to chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. And God is what? He's the God of the second chance. I want to encourage you guys in that. I pray that we would know Romans 5.20, where the Bible says that where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more. Again, not a mission or permission to keep on sinning, but repent from the heart and don't lose heart. It's not that we keep on sinning, you guys. It's that we keep on going. And that's one of my main concerns. I want you guys to make sure that you go forward in your relationship with God. I thought it was interesting. Don't you guys think it's interesting that God went through Nathan? Why do you think he went through Nathan? We don't know for sure, but we do know that Nathan was the one that confronted him of his sin, right? And who knows, Nathan, maybe he thought that, you know, David was washed up, that David was done. Maybe Nathan thought, you know, that there's no way God can use him or God could even do a great work through his life anymore. But here we see the Lord working through Nathan. And oftentimes, here it is, you guys, it's the one who's done no wrong, at least visibly, who needs to learn this lesson the most. You remember the prodigal son? You guys remember that story, Luke chapter 15? The prodigal son messed up big time, big time. He was out there. He spent half of his father's you know, fortune on prostitutes and drinking and you know, just a scandalous lifestyle. But there is the good son. He never did anything wrong, right? I mean, just squeaky clean, right? But in the end, the prodigal son returns to the father and the father restores him and he throws a a party. He celebrates my son that was lost, was out there living a life of sin, has returned and he was just so happy, right? But what ends up happening? The self-righteous son had a real problem with that. You know what? I I don't think they deserve a second chance. Look what they're doing. They're disqualified. And God says, you know what? Be careful. And what ends up happening is he goes and he has a discussion with what? 
the, the prideful son. And we need to be careful. Who knows? Maybe that's why the Lord went through Nathan. I don't know, but Nathan comes and he says, David, and the Lord told me something trippy, man. Your son is actually Jedediah because God loves him so much. So I think, again, going through the scriptures, it's just hard sometimes to find that balance between grace and holiness. But I'm telling you this, if you're on this side of, this, of the sin, don't do it. Don't do it. But if you're on that side, I pray you would repent. I pray you would learn. I pray you'd get up. And I pray you keep going. And you leave the results into the hands of a God who is a lot more gracious than you might realize. And so what ends up happening in verse 26? Now, Joab fought against Reba of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. That means it's almost done. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city, and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. And then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And so if you remember, we've kind of followed this story. It's been a while where Joab and his men are, are sieging the city of Rabbah. And uh, they've been there, they, they may have been there for, for over a year. They, they were just suffocating the city. Now the time comes where they finally captured the water supply. And so what ends up happening, Joab says, Hey, David, you better get down here. Bring the rest of the troops, muster up the rest of the troops, lest you know I conquer the city and it be called after my name. And, you know, in looking at that, I don't know, maybe this was kind of okay on Joab's part. You know, one thing about Joab was the, that he was insistent on remaining the assistant, you know. He's one of the few guys that didn't want to usurp the crown and get that position, man. He said, no, David, you're the king. Because sometimes playing second fiddle is the hardest place of all. Joab said, hey, you know what, I don't want to get the glory here, so you come and let's do this under your name. And yet at the same time, when you look at it, who's the one doing all the work? It was Joab, right? In one sense. You know, all this was a formality. David, come down here. But it wasn't a reality. And basically, in looking at it from a biblical perspective, and I think from a Christian perspective, we shouldn't be naming cities after ourselves anyways, huh? You know, we shouldn't, man. As a matter of fact, when we get a victory, who gets the credit? God does, man. That's it. Not us. Absolutely not. It was the Lord who had given them the victory. They, they should have known this whole thing by now. They've been serving the Lord long enough, right? God gives us the victory. We don't. He gets all the glory and all the credit. But anyways, David follows through and he comes and he complies. And what ends up happening is they conquer the city. And he takes the crown off the king of Ammon and he puts it on his own head. 
Okay, the the count the the crown weighs a talent of gold. Okay, do you know how much that is, you guys, with all the jewels? You know how heavy that crown was? Probably probably seventy five pounds. Okay, remember when we used to lift weights, you guys, the forty five plates? Okay, try putting a couple of those on top of your head. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Obviously, it wasn't a crown to wear or bear. But here's the thing, you guys, a heavy crown, a heavy crown. There's a message there. There's a message there because all crowns are heavy. And all, they, they all are. Now, some people know this and they consider the cost of being a leader. They consider the cost of being a king. You know, over the years being involved in the ministry, I've asked different people, hey, would you like to be a leader? Would you like to be a leader? And I'm blessed by some who say yes, but I'm also blessed by some who have said no. You know, I, I don't want to oversee that ministry. I don't want to lead or whatever. And of course, it's up to the Lord. But I think that sometimes people are hungry for power. And I think other times people really count the cost. And they don't just want the position. They've carefully considered the weight of the crown. And they know that that's a heavy responsibility. I think there's a lesson here. Anyways, this crown was set on David's head briefly. <laughs> And then he brought out the spoil of the city, the Bible says here in verse 30, in great abundance. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but here's the thing, you guys. Things are kind of going cool in the monarchy. They're kind of going cool politically. He got a victory. But behind the scenes, what's going on in his family? And we're going to see that things aren't right at home. And really, things aren't right here either. Before, when we read about David getting a whole bunch of gold and silver, we would immediately read and he gave it to the Lord. He gave it to the Lord. This time, we don't read that. There's something that's not right. And we're going to see this as we go through our next chapter in chapter 13. Because look what it says in verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. We now come to a section in David's life that most people will call the section or the chapter of Absalom. That's why in verse 1, Absalom is the first name mentioned. His name means my father is peace, but it's too bad he didn't take it to heart. Now what we read right here, it says that Amnon loved Tamar. She was the beautiful sister of Absalom. Okay, so you guys know, you guys probably know, huh? Absalom was a hunk. He was really, really handsome, long hair, just, I don't know, Fabian. I don't know who's a... Pretty guys, right? And his and his sister, apparently she was a knockout, so to speak, from human human perspectives. They you know, maybe their mom, they both came from the same mom, we're gonna see. Maybe she was just beautiful and and, and they just produced beautiful children. So so what ends up happening is Amnon is just man, it says he's in love with her, but we know it's not love, huh? It's just, he is just so infatuated with her. She's so pretty. This is lust. Or we're going to see it's crazy. 
There's a big difference, and we've got to make sure that we understand the difference between love and lust. The Bible says that love does not seek its own, but lust sure does. Love seeks its own, and it seeks to own. And the Bible says that love thinks no evil, but lust not only thinks of evil, it is defined as evil, and it's a big problem in the world that we live in today. We're going to see Right now, we're going to get into a lesson of, of, uh, of a sister being molested by her brother. We're going to learn a lesson of rape and murder, lust. And these are things that we see, even today, prevailing in our society. Because we are a sexually sick society. You know, heavy lesson, you guys. This guy... Uh, Amnon, you know, fell in love with his half-sister. And we know that they were prohibited to be married according to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9. And so anyways, this guy is so in love with her, love, that he's sick, you know, he's sick. He's losing weight, you know, and what ends up happening is his friend notice in verse 3. It says, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, and David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. He sure was. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day by day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food, and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And so again, if you can kind of follow the story, Amnon is losing weight, he's sick, he can't eat. And so uh, he's got a friend by the name of Jonadab, who the Bible says is really crafty. And so he sees him and he says, what's up? You know, the king's son? What are you doing? You, you shouldn't be skinny, man. You should be, you know, healthy, strapping young man, right? And so what ends up happening is he tells him, the problem is, man, I'm in love with, with Tamar. I'm in love with Tamar. And, you know, that's where it ended. But what ends up happening is he's got this so-called friend named Jonadab who says, oh, no, that's not the way it is for the king's sons. King's sons get whatever they want. You know, one of my favorite shows, you guys ever watch Leave it to Beaver? You Leave it to Beaver? You, if, you don't, if you don't see it, that's such a great show. I love it. But anyways, uh, Wally has a friend named Eddie Haskell. You guys know who he is? Okay. This guy's worse than Eddie Haskell, man. But he's a friend. He's a friend like that, right? <laughs> he he tells him, "Hey, this is all you got to do, you know, to get what you want." And what does he do? He leads him into sin. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, "Anybody in our lives who makes it easy to sin is certainly not much of a friend." Well, this guy not only made it easy to sin, you know, he he exactly, you know, told him, that, "Well, this is all you have to do." You know, pretend you're sick and then ask your dad to send Tamar to you, you know, to bring you some chicken soup, so to speak, right? 
This will help me get better, Dad. I tell you what, I like Tamar's, you know, cakes. And, and so we're going to see, this is interesting, because remember, this is all because of David's sin. And of course, everybody has to make their own choices, but it's really rooted in David's sin. And that's why we're going to see this and the next thing, everything goes through David. As a dad, and, and so some of you guys are parents, it's so difficult. You know, if anybody tells you that parenting is easy, it's because they don't have any kids or they don't have enough kids, you know. <laughs> parenting is so hard. The, the best thing I can tell you is you have to pray and you have to be on your knees and you have to be constantly asking God for wisdom and raising each and every one of your unique children. Right? We do. And what we find right here is David did not do that. He was a great king, he was a great psalmist, but he was a terrible dad. And what had happened was he had sinned so much that he came to that point of not being able to discipline his children because of his sin. And as a pastor, this is kind of something that I think I can relate to and I think you guys can relate to because there's two ways to look at it. You can just keep on sinning and, and say, well, I'm just going to be therefore, you know, overly gracious with the congregation. Or you can say, you know what, if I'm ever to preach on holiness, then I've got to be a holy man. And you know that because the last thing in the world you want to be is a hypocrite. And that's, I think, where David was kind of trapped. And he didn't use discernment. He didn't pray. You know, here's uh, this son of his, Amnon, who is just infatuated. And, you know, he wants to, we're going to see, be sexually with his, his daughter. And David doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have a clue. So what ends up happening in verse 7? And David sent home to Tamar, saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. And then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out for me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. If you have an NIV, it says that he raped her. What a sad story. What a sad story. You know, David sends her to him. In those days, from what I understand, they lived in separate quarters, the king's virgins and the king's sons. They wouldn't have a lot of interaction. The only way they could ever get together is if David orchestrated it. We're going to see the same thing happen later. But what ends up happening is, you know, when she does come, you know, just thinking that she's going to be used, you know, to make him better, to help him through this difficulty. 
what ends up happening is uh, Amnon takes her into the bedroom. And there's some things here I think that we need to learn. Some of you ladies, you know, and I know this, you would have never thought, you know, Tamar would have never thought that Amnon would do such a thing to her. But I tell you what, even among family members, man, don't put yourself in a situation where you're vulnerable like that, where you're alone with some guy, you know, and you, even though, you know, you, you think that would never happen, man, it happens. It happens frequently. You know, there's a lot of lessons here, I think, on the boundaries there that the ladies can, you know, walk in. But, you know, what ends up happening is when lust gets a hold of you, then there's no reason. You know, she tried to reason with him. Oh, why would you do such a thing? You know, you'll be a fool. I have nowhere to go. Let's let my dad work this out. But like one gentleman said, lust and reason are enemies. Now, we need to be aware of lust. We need to refrain, abstain from it. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Second Timothy 2.22 says, Flee these youthful lusts. One person said, If you give in to lust, you'll have a little pleasure followed by a lifetime of pain. But if you flee lust, you might have a little pain followed by a lifetime of joy. You know, be careful, you guys. What ends up happening is he takes her and he forces her and he rapes her. And then we read in verse 15, this is crazy. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil is sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. And she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servants put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and wept away, went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Strange that he would hate her exceedingly. I mean, the the very next verse. How could this happen? Well, from what I understand, this is a frequent occurrence. Rapists often kill their victims because when they've done what they do, they hate themselves. And now knowing what they've done, they then go on with their hate to transfer their hatred, frustration, and guilt to their victims. We find here uh, some principles. And, And girls, and I think guys need to pay attention as well, but the perverted principle of the way that most men are. Okay, ladies, um, be careful. You know, once they get what they want, you know, for most men, the bottom line is, and I'll say it this way so you remember, once they score, they don't want you no more. Okay? That's it. And that's why it's important that we wait until the confines of marriage where God will bless that institution. You know, be so careful because this heart that we see that Amnon has is the heart 
of men who don't love Jesus, period. I don't care how good of a guy he is. If he doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, if he's not walking as a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is him. This is his heart. And what we find right here is this guy treated women like a thing. Warren Wiersbe said, when you treat people like things to be used, you end up throwing them aside like broken toys or old clothes. Something that's interesting, you guys, look at verse 17. Do you notice that the word woman is in italicized, that it's italics? That means that the word woman is not even there in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, she's called a thing. Get this thing out of here and close the door. Because that's the way that people are. You know, and this is a lesson I've learned in life, in the ministry. Because there are some people who just, they don't really love people. They use people. And, and you know, for whatever reason, they just use, they don't really love people. They just use people. And so when they're done, boom, it's okay, you're like, a, you're like old clothes or a broken toy. And we got to be so careful. John Corson said, may the Holy Spirit give you understanding that this is what happens when lust is the main ingredient, when lust dominates a relationship. Look what happens to Tamar. We read in verse 20, it says right here, so Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. What damage is done to those girls who are used by these guys in such a way, how it breaks them, how it crushes them, how it desolates them. You know, this Hebrew word right here is an interesting word. It means deserted or devoid of people, a state of bleak and dismal emptiness, misery, joyless. It's the effects of abandonment and neglect. And Tamar experienced both of these things from the man who had violated her and from her father who had raised her. She was there desolate in her brother's house. Having lost her virginity, Tamar was now a good prospect, was not a good prospect for marriage. And she could no longer reside in the apartments for virgins. And so where would she go? Who would take her in? Who would even want her? How could she prove that Amnon was the aggressor and that she hadn't seduced him? She went to the apartment of her brother Absalom. Why? Because Absalom was now responsible in a polygamous society. He was responsible to protect the honor of his sister. And so here's Tamar living in desolation due to molestation. And there are so many who live there. Just real quick, just in case you guys didn't know, and the statistics, they vary a little bit, but there are many out there who say molestation is on the decline. But uh, most statistics will tell you that molestation in America takes place between 15 and 25% of females and 15% of males. In India, check this out, in India, 47% of females and 51% of males have been sexually abused as children, making it the highest country with the victims of molestation. You know, and, and, I, and I know, you know, I, I don't want to be overprotective. God will show you for every family it's different. But man, I, I, I didn't let my kids stay nowhere, man. I just, you got to be really careful. And I know my son would say that's bad grammar. 
but I do that on purpose, okay? I, nowhere, sorry, man. You know, really, really careful with these things. Usually it's the stepfather or mom's boyfriend. Sometimes it's the brother. I knew one gal real close to her, and she told me about her brother molesting two of the, two of the sisters. And so it happens. It's a hideous sin. It makes you want to, it makes you want to kill people, huh? What did David do? So we read in verse 21, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. If you have an NIV, it says he was furious. Now, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you might like that. I, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I just think that's it. That's it. You didn't do anything else. You were just angry. You were just furious. I mean, you know, when you read the story right here, what you find is it didn't even sound like he gave even verbal correction or discipline to anyone involved. The question is, why didn't David do anything about it? Well, bottom line is, it's because of his own sin, and he just wasn't a good parent. You know, he didn't discipline his children. He didn't understand the importance of it. You know, we've got to spank our kids, you know, and you've got to discipline them. The Lord will show you exactly how and the details and all those things because every, every kid is different. But, man, you know, I, I want to encourage you to make sure that you exercise your parental authority and chasten them, especially, you know, when they're little. You know, you just establish that authority. Uh, don't beat them up when they're big, okay? You know, you can't do that. You take away something from them or whatever. Warren Wiersbe said, Chastening is not punishment meted out by an angry judge who wants to uphold the law. Rather, it's difficulty permitted by a loving father who wants his children to submit to his will and develop godly character. They're never going to learn. They're never going to be trained unless we take that parental responsibility. You know, Eli had the same problem. He never disciplined his children, only verbally, and he would get mad. What ended up happening? They all died. <laughs> They all died. And so David was just angry. But we read in verse 22, And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, Well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the kings go with him. Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Two years, man. Two years went by, you guys. Two years of Tamar being desolate. Two years of David doing nothing. Two years of Absalom's hate, you know, flowing and growing, right? I mean, all that time, 
I think David had the opportunity to step in, but he never did. And so what ends up happening is Absalom comes up with a plan. And, you know, time for a celebration. We're going to, you know, shear the sheep. And in those days, whenever that happened, you know, you had a nice party. Here's the thing. So he says, hey, Dad, you want to come? Dad, you come, Dad. Dad, you know, come to my party. And Absalom knew that his dad wouldn't come. What does that tell you about David? Well, David said, oh, I don't want to be a burden to you and all this kind of stuff. No, no, Absalom knew. It doesn't matter. If I invite my dad, he's not going to come. Because that's the kind of dad that David was. Tell you what, man. If I can, if my son ever invites, I hope he wants to spend time with me when he gets older, man. I hope so. But he knew, oh, dad won't come. And so it was all part of the plan. Okay, dad, well, how about the next heir to the throne as your representative? In those days, because we know that Amnon was the next heir to the throne, he could send him as his representative, right? And so David, he kind of says, well, why do you want you know, Amnon to go? You know, a little suspicious, a little red flag. You guys, you know, pay attention to those, man. David says, okay, I'll tell you what, I've got a backup though. I'll send all my sons. I'm sure everything will be fine. I'm sure everything will be fine. No, that's not the way it worked out. David lacked discernment. We saw that in chapter 13, verse 6, with his daughter Tamar. Now we see it with his son Absalom and Amnon. And so what ends up happening? The king's sons go in verse 30, and it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that's right. Did I read that whole thing? No, verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. When was the last time we saw him lying on the ground? There he is lying on the ground again. Another one of his sons is dead because of David's sins. There he is again, right? Lying down on the ground. And so we read in verse 32, Then Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, this is that same knucklehead, that crafty guy, you know, David's brother answered and he said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And so read in verse 34, Then Absalom fled, and his young man, the young man who was keeping watch, lifted his eyes and looked, and there were many people were coming and from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. And so it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. 
So Absalom had, you know, the whole thing planned out and uh and he would go back to Geshur. That's where his mom was from according to 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 3. I'm sure he worked it out with his grandfather that he could end up hanging out there. And as a result, what ends up happening? The son dies. Uh, Absalom flees and David is hurting. You guys, I pray, and I know we went through this fast, but, you know, especially if you're here today and especially if you're married and, and some other gal has caught your eye or some other guy has caught your eye, ladies, whatever it is, whatever the sexual sin, whatever, there's just certain things there, you know, and all sin is sin. Don't get me wrong, all sin is sin. You know, but we stumble along the way. We mess up. But there are some things I think that the Holy Spirit, God is just pointing out, says, you know, but that's just this, this transgression, this iniquity. Your eyes are wide open. And if you cross that line, don't cross that line. Because this is the kind of stuff that you can do to your family. You know, of course we know. And I, I want you guys to know this, that we can affect our family in such a, a, a way that would just do so much harm to them. But remember, the flip side is true as well, that we can affect our family in such a way when we just love the Lord in simplicity and purity that we can do so much good for them. Don't forget that one either. What an influence that we have as 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 parents, you know. Here we see, I think, you know, Amnon repeating the, the sin of, of David. And we see that oftentimes, Isaac repeating the sin of Abraham. You know, a lot of times we see that. And I think God teaches us the lesson that we need to be so careful. Even the consequences of forgiven sin, because we reap what we sown. And if we sinned against God and neglected our families, then we're going to reap deep. You know, it's hard enough, like I said, if you're a perfect parent, we know, of course, the child still has a free will whether or not to follow God. Now, that's hard enough, but we as parents need to pray for them, pray hard for them, and maybe even pray harder for ourselves because we need that wisdom in raising our children. Warren Wiersbe said, Of all the trials of life, the most difficult to bear are those that come from our own family because of our own failures. And that's where David was right now. David has now lost two sons to death, the one son to exile, and the situation will grow worse. We're going to see the next time as we go through our study. And as you continue to study through, you're going to see that, remember David when he had pronounced judgment over that parable that Nathan spoke? You know, fourfold. He's going to repay fourfold. Four of David's sons die. Right? We see right here, um, Amnon died. Uh, the child died. Absalom will die. And then eventually, when Solomon becomes king, Adonijah will die. Four sons, dead, because of their dad's sin. And what we see also is that his daughter was raped. These are things that can really happen. And that's why we've got to make sure that we seek the Lord with everything that we are. You know, the big problem right here, lust. Uh, I think that Amnon struggled with lust sexually. I think Absalom struggled with lust powerfully. He, he wanted to be king. And he knew that Amnon was in the way. He wanted that crown. And so not only was it him taking vengeance on his sister, for his sister, 
but it was him setting himself up. But we're going to see next time how Absalom, he, he rebels, and uh, he ends up usurping the throne. Beware of that lust, you guys. It'll get you, man. C.H. Spurgeon once told a parable of a tyrant, a crazy story, who summoned one of his subjects into his presence, and he ordered him to make a chain. And so the blacksmith, whose occupation was to work with metal, went on to forge the chain. And so when it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant, and the tyrant then ordered him to take it away and make it stronger and make it longer. And so the blacksmith came back, he brought it to the tyrant, and again, the tyrant said to the blacksmith, go back and make that chain stronger and make it longer. And so he came back and obeyed the order of the tyrant, who looked at it and then did what? He commanded his servants to take that chain that the blacksmith had created himself and bind him with it and cast him into prison. And that's exactly what the devil does. Spurgeon said he makes them forge their own chain through lust and then binds them hand and foot and casts them into outer darkness. So what do we got to do? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. You can remember that real easy, right? 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2, 2, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Let me read it to you. Get it? Read it to you. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee also youthful lusts. Come on, you guys, grow up. Flee also youthful lusts. Here it is, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those. That's with other people, man, with those who do what? Who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's what you got to do. And that's one thing I've learned, you guys. You can't just stop doing bad things. You got to start doing good things. You have to replace it with other things. Okay, let's do another Bible study right now. No, I'm just joking. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you and I thank you so much, Lord, for your love and grace in my life. I ask for you to continue to work in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, Lord. Bless them. Give them wisdom. Help us to flee youthful lusts. God, give us wisdom as parents. Oh, Lord, we need that so desperately. Help us to pray, Lord, like we mean it, uh, to be on our face, fasting and weeping. I pray that, Lord, you would do a mighty work in every single person here, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your word, Lord. And I pray that tonight, having studied it together, that it will make a massive difference in our life. I love you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, just in case there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, who's not a Christian, Lord, that today would be the day that every single person here would choose to turn from their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-34. One four. Remember that Jesus loves you.